Okay, we continue our study this morning in 1 Peter. We're still in chapter 2. We'll finish up chapter 2 today. You should already have a handout. If not, I have some more up here. Alright, to get our bearings in 1 Peter. We, the grand subject that Peter is writing on in chapter 2 is for Christians to be submissive. We, the Christians, are being persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Peter says that even in all these times of persecution, you are to continue to do good and you are to be submissive. And he tells them to be subject for the Lord's sake in verse 13 to every human institution. And then in verse 18, he tells bonds or, or household servants to be subject to your masters with all respect uh, to both the good and the evil. And that you are still supposed to do good. And even if you're beaten unjustly, you are still continuing to do good. But make sure that you're not bringing this upon yourself because there's nothing commendable about that. And then last week we saw that verse 21, Peter says, you've even been called to this. You know, you've been called by a ho- with a holy calling according to Paul in uh, Thessalonians. But now he says here that you have been called to suffer. For this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So your Lord suffered and he's not asking you to do anything that he didn't do. He's not asking you to go through anything that he didn't go through. You deserve to go through this. Jesus did. He never sinned. So, he's your example, follow in his steps. And you, even when you are treated unjustly, you continue to do good. So that brings us up to today's um, reading. And we are going to begin in verse 22 through 25. And um, I'll ask Michelle if you'll read those verses for us. Um, and then we will read the well first of all let's read the introductory verses yes let's read have Romans 3 18 and following read things through 25 Romans 3 18 through 25 there is no fear of God before their eyes now we know that what things soever the law saith it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, 
being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. All right, these verses are speaking of the atonement, which is the heart of the gospel. And that is what our message today is going to be from 1 Peter. All right, now we'll have 1 Peter read, and then we'll come back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. All right, so Michelle, 1 Peter 2.21 through 25 for us. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Okay. And then let's have 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21 read to us. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Okay, so here we have three passages. The central thought is the atonement. So that's what we will be talking about today. The very heart of the gospel. And um, we are going to learn about what's called the substitutionary atonement. Okay. <clears throat> now, in verse 22 in your notes, Peter informs his recipients that Christ was sinless. We just had that read to us by Laura. Christ who knew no sin. <coughs> he had no sin. <clears throat> Now, this means that he did not deserve to suffer. We deserve to. And starting with this verse, we see the following things about Jesus. As I already mentioned, he was sinless. And he spoke no deceit, as we read in verse 22. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He was spotless. The spotless Lamb of God. Okay, and then going further, when reviled, he did not revile in return. That's in verse 22. And then, when he suffered, he did not threaten. That's in verse 23. Well, all this is in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He suffered, he did not threaten. And then finally we see that he entrusted himself to God while being mistreated and while suffering. 
Okay, now, let's have Charles, if you'll look up for us, John 13, 36, and 37. No, scratch that. Uh, Matthew 27, 39 through 44. And then Bud, Luke 24, 35 through 39. All right, now, the, um, we're going to take a look at some of these sufferings, and I guess this is where Peter probably was looking to when he wrote this. So, Charles, whenever you get to it, um, Matthew 27, 39 through 44. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires for him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Alright, so they were... Thoroughly reviling the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, you're going to build, destroy the temple? Save yourself. Let's see who you are. If you're the Son of God, come down now from the cross. Well, he didn't even need to come down from the cross. He could have zapped them from right there. But he didn't do anything. Um, I think there's a common saying that nails didn't keep him to the cross, but love did. That was the only way that Jesus could reconcile us was by staying on that cross even while we, while he was being reviled. And um, that might take more than we would think because here he is in great pain on the cross, totally sinless, and these wicked, wicked Jewish leaders reviled him. But he did not revile in return. All right, let's take John's, look at uh, Luke's account of it in Luke 24, 35 through 39. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. All right, as you can probably tell, that was the wrong reference. <laughs> uh, it would be 2335. Through 39, I am so sorry. Yeah, chapter 23, if you can look over there, bud. Might as well have been. If it wasn't you, it would have been me, so don't worry about it. <clears throat> and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers who also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were <clears throat> hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Notice that everything that the <clears throat> all these wicked people were doing is, is what Jesus had taught. And now they're bringing these words back on and mocking him. <clears throat> you know, save yourself, you're king of the Jews. And all of these things, and yet Jesus did not revile. He stayed silent, just like it was predicted in Isaiah 53. Now, there's no way any of us will ever suffer more than Jesus did or be reviled more than him. Uh, so, if Jesus did it, you walk in his steps. Look what he went through while he was hanging on the cross. You'll never be in that kind of pain. You'll never be mocked as seriously as Jesus was mocked. <clears throat> Therefore, you bear up under that. And also back in uh, Luke 24, if you look at verse 46, I've got that noted here. I don't know what it says. Twenty-three forty-six. I'm gonna write chapter one of these days. It said, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." And having said this, he breathed his last. So he committed everything to the Father. And so that's why Peter says he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There is going to come a final judgment. And you need to realize that whatever wrong is being done to you, they may not suffer for that now, but their day is coming. Because he is the righteous judge. And knowing what Jesus has been through, and knowing that in the future... They're going to be judged for what they're doing. You can endure. All right. Continuing in the next verse. Here we get into the heart of the gospel. In your notes, the substitutionary atonement is clearly taught in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree <clears throat> that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, I want to read what Edmund Clowney has to say about this. Very able commentator. He makes this statement. I'm quoting here. The background for Isaiah's prophecy and Peter's teaching is the symbolism of sacrifice that God appointed for Israel. So this, this is really nothing new being taught what Jesus did. 
He says, sin was pictured as a burden to be placed upon the head of the sacrificial animal before it was killed. Death was the penalty for sin. The sacrificial animal died in the place of the sinner who confessed his sin with his hands on the head of the animal. That action graphically pictured the transfer of the weight of his sin from himself to the substitute. Exactly what's happening here. The sprinkling of the blood of the sacrificed animal marked atonement. The penalty of sin had been paid. Isaiah describes the mysterious tragedy of the righteous servant of the Lord. His astonishing agony, his scornful rejection, his submissive meekness. Then he discloses the meaning of the apparent tragedy. The suffering servant offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. He was stricken with death for the transgression of his people. His soul was made an offering for sin. He bore the sins of the many. Okay. So it's what we have here is the things that happened in Leviticus um, are are there to teach us about the Christ to come. We have the uh, priest uh, putting his hand on the heads of the sacrificial goat, confessing the sins of Israel, the goat sent out in the wilderness. And then we have the other goat was slaughtered and his blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and that would be for the atonement of sin. All that points to Jesus Christ, what Jesus did. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus bore our sins. What those two scapegoats, what those two goats would show would be what Jesus did for us. Now, people that just refuse to look at the Old Testament and say that's Old Testament stuff, they do not, there's no way they can understand all these things why Jesus was dying on the cross like that. If they didn't understand Isaiah 53, Leviticus 16, then they are really um, in the dark. I just don't see how you can separate it. You got something? Yeah, I just watched a DVD, one of the DVDs that Val just uh, donated to the library, and it was uh, it was a debate between Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchens <clears throat> the uh, atheist and Christopher Hitchens were just outraged over the substitutionary atonement. He called it, uh, you can't die for somebody else's sins, you can die for somebody, but not for their sins. He said it's not fair, it's not just, and he said it's monstrous. And Wilson explained what you just did, the Old Testament substitution. For sins, and he just shook his head and believed in it and stuff. But I wonder but how he thinks he. It's can. really insulting to atheists, you know, when yeah. you talk about things like this. It's amazing how that guy knows what God can't do, right? Yeah. Right. Who are you to tell God what He can't do? He can put His sins of your sins on anybody's head He wants to. Yeah, they, well, you know, it's not only atheists that despise this. There are people in the evangelical church that despise this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement for the very same reasons this atheist did. 
So that, that's why I'm spending some time on it. You're going to come across this kind of garbage. And um, first of all, God says you're a sinner, which you are. You need an atonement, uh, somebody to pay for your sins, and God has provided that. And if God wants to work by representative, by Adam and by Christ, he can do that. Adam represented us, now Christ represents us. He can do that, and he can lay our sins on Jesus Christ, justly. God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to do anything, and we all perish. So this, this is a basically a despised doctrine, not only outside the church, but inside the church. But it is clearly taught in the scriptures. Isaiah 53, right here, Leviticus 16. And it's the heart of the gospel. That's why we have to be clear on this. Commentator Lighton says this was his business, meaning God or Jesus, God, not to rectify sinful man by example, but to redeem him by his blood. Jesus is, is an example, but he's more than an example. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then when we look back at the passage Donna read, in Romans, chapter 3, first of all, we see that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So every man is guilty. How guilty is every man? I want to read something that our Westminster divines said in chapter 6, section 4. From this original corruption, which was the corruption we inherited from Adam, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. And all of these are backed up by the scripture. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly disposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. So, we were going to be redeemed. God had to do something. 
So it goes on and says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested, in verse 21, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So all of the Old Testament bears witness to what Paul was saying here. <clears throat> the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. And then in verse 25, God put forward a propitiation by his blood. In other words, Jesus, all of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus while he was on the cross. The very pains of hell that we deserve it. Alright, so that's the very heart of the gospel. And yet, there are a lot of people in the evangelical church nowadays that take that. And everybody, I guess, outside of the gospel thinks it's unfair to show what terrible things that sin does to the mind. They'll think that God just cannot do this. Now, we got to realize when Braden's calling me, Go see if you can give him a call. Um, <clears throat> that Adam is our representative. God works by representative. And Adam was put here. He was created by God. God appointed him to represent all of mankind. And he did. And he sinned. Now, when he sinned, we, we have the sin and corruption handed down from Adam. Sin is imputed to us. We are legally liable for what he did. God makes us legally liable. Sin is imputed. And it's important to be able to distinguish this. The corruption we have is inherited. It is passed down. It is not legal. It's just that our body and soul are corrupted because of what Adam did. So we have the imputation of Adam's sin and we have corruption that we inherited from him. So unless somebody takes care of our legal guilt and our actual transgressions, then we can in no way be righteous before God. And so we have the substitutionary atonement by Jesus. Now, I have here in your notes, Christians are told here that because of what Jesus did for us, we have now died to sin. We should leave sin behind. That's taught in other places too. It says, because... We die to sin and live under righteousness. And we can do this because we have been healed. Now I read you from the confession how terrible people are because of the sin and corruption handed down from Adam. And 
So an unbeliever can in no way please God. It doesn't matter what he does. He cannot please God because of what I just read you out of the confession. But we can please God because by Jesus' wounds, we have been healed and we have the ability to please God. So in your notes there, it shows us that we have been healed. We can do these things. Jesus brings both atonement and healing. We can do things for God. We can be useful to Him. We can please Him. But unbelievers whose sins have not been atoned for can in no way, at any time, any place, please God. Now they can do things which are good, but not in God's eyes. Horizontally, you know, in society, they can do good things. But no matter what they do, it's sin in God's eyes. They have a corrupt heart, and only corrupt fruit can proceed from a corrupt heart. Right, Mike, can you look up for us Isaiah 53, 6? All right, we have here in verse 25 of our reading. Okay. I got All right. Yeah, okay, hold on a second. Verse 25 says that we were straying like sheep. This is 1 Peter 2.25. But we've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. All right, let's have Isaiah 53.6 read. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Okay, because God has caused our iniquity to fall upon Jesus, then we have returned to the shepherd and overseer. Christ died for us, therefore we have been restored to have the right relationship with God. And remember Peter in John 21, after denying Christ three times, Christ restored him. And uh, in the same way, he restores us. So it's comforting for us Christians to know that Jesus is our good shepherd and our overseer who protects us. Looking at all the things he has done for us. All right, that's all I have for today. Anybody have anything to add? The very heart of the gospel. Wow. Um, Augustine would say that that while our works are accepted, they're still not perfect. And it's only because God sees them through Christ that, that he accepts them as good works. Right. Okay, anybody else? Well, I was just thinking about this whole atonement and why people have such a hard time. And some of it, I think, is the fruit of the Enlightenment. I mean, if you go into ancient cultures... A lot of the pagans, they did human sacrifice because they were trying to appease the God. I mean, they understood that there's something that they had to do, and it was going to require a blood sacrifice. And I think once the Enlightenment, you know, well, we have to move beyond all that mystic kind of, you know, crazy stuff. And I, don't, I, don't, I, 
people account for sin, you know, if there is no God and there's no people aren't sinners, how do they account? I mean, they do, but they don't admit it. I mean, if you cut in line in front of them at the grocery store, they're going to get mad because there's some moral. <laughs> it's not like there's no laws. They are laws, and as soon as you, you know, it imposes on them, all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, there's some moral law here. I can't, you know. So it's just it's very interesting in the modern culture that we can't see the necessity of a sacrifice. It's not but, a sin for them. It's an unfortunate mistake. <laughs> Until you do it to them. I'm always human. Until yeah. you do it to them. Yeah. Right? Right. It's written on their hearts. Well, oh. and then I think, too, there's that little part, and, you know, it's not the whole thing, but there is this thing that if, when you go from an agricultural society to one that's not, the farmer who loves their sheep requires, they're going to have, they love them, they care for them, but they know they're going to kill them because that's what's required for them to live. There's something that has to die so they can live. And so there's that mindset that's already in the back that God created. But if you don't ever, you know, you don't see that in your life day to day, then it makes that whole concept a lot harder, I think. Anyway, I was just thinking about those, those things. They are very inconsistent. <clears throat>